0: Tell me what
1: you had for breakfast this morning. I started with with some fresh herring. Did you? No.
0: Hello, it's Peter Lloyd here. This is the penultimate podcast in this year's DTM series, and it's about the idea of expertise, and particularly design expertise. What is it? How do you get it? And what distinguishes a novice designer from an expert designer? So first of all, I talked to Matthijs van Dijk, a fellow professor at Delft, but more significantly, someone who has a lot of expertise in design practice. And as in the other podcasts, after the interview, Mika and I pull out some of the key themes and mention some useful references for you to follow up on about design expertise and expertise in general, if you're interested. Finally, a word of warning about the sound quality in the interview. Although Matthijs' microphone was working fine, my microphone decided it didn't want to work, so I may sound a little bit further away than normal. But once you get used to it, you probably won't notice. But I thought I'd confess up front, you got the important guy anyway. So enough of me talking, and on with the podcast. So I'm here in the studio with Matthijs van Dijk, who is a founding director of Amsterdam-based Reframing Studio, a professor of practice in mobility design at Delft, and a co-author of the FIP book, Vision in Product Design. Matthijs has many years experience working as a designer across a huge range of briefs and we're going to talk about what that experience means in terms of the expertise he's required. So welcome to the DTM podcast, Matt. <laughs> Thank
1: you. <laughs> I feel
0: honoured. Very nice to have you here. Okay. And we've worked together before too, so we yeah. know each other quite well. So I, basically I wanted to start off by what kind of projects does Reframing Studio uh, work on? Can you tell us a bit about the the studio the setup the kind of clients that you work with what we
1: do nowadays is that so we're just very interested in society and and it's not that we start from a societal problem but that we start from a societal theme and it's really nice not to start from a problem but more from a, from a boundary like um, information in society or psychiatrical health in society. So it's a value free frame you start to work with. When you're um, working with a client. You when know. you work yeah. with yeah. a client. Yeah. So it's I, I think what we do is mainly to to describe a boundary of research. Uh because we really don't know yet what we will come up with. The only thing what we know is the the steps we take uh, from a to z okay and and that's also what we sell to the client so the, so the client is like int- so the client is often a little bit like confused about their role in future society they want to understand future society and and and, f- and by understanding future society they also can kind of decide on what kind of role they want to play in future society.
0: So they come to you with a, a question. So,
1: yeah, but, but it's more about understanding their role than understanding a problem or yeah, understanding... Okay. So, so that's a completely other thing.
0: And what kind of clients do you work with?
1: It's all type of organizations, but they have to have a specific size because the work we do uh, takes a lot of time. So small organizations often do not have the, the capital... To start working with us, so think of national governments, uh, city governments, big corporates, um, non-governmental organizations, or more foundations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and, and I think it's also related to to organizations um, who've never seen a designer before. Okay. I really like to go there.
0: How do they find you?
1: They don't find us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I think we're more proactive over there. So we're interested in a societal issue. And then we start doing research on who's in charge. And then we start conversations. And I think often an assignment is more an end result of a conversation than of a sales, a sales project or a sales... Yeah.
0: So I I wanted to quote something from the VIP book. Oh! Uh, and um, which is uh, relevant to that to that question. And you say quite early on in the book you, that you started working with VIP in 1995 mm-hmm. and it's like any innovation process. It took 15 years to implement and it took me 10 years to sell the expertise to clients. And I wondered how... How has the expertise you sell changed over the years? You sort of described it.
1: Yeah, I think there's n- not a lot of things changed, but but maybe there's some steps that are easier to execute because of tools we have developed. So so when I listened to those words in the book that was. Published in two thousand eleven and mm. written between or so five years before, <laughs> 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 I, I, it's it it still makes sense. So it took a lot of time and effort to put that new way of working um, into a in, business
0: and a practice. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and I think I think it's true that we that organizations understands better what that type of process can mean for them. But on the other hand, the process didn't change at all. It's still the same thing. And and maybe by making things a little bit more explicit and uh, by understanding yourself where the emphasis is on when working for a client, because when you think of VIP, it's different steps. I think in the beginning, we always presented it as just following those steps, but, but maybe you have to say it's not those steps, but there's three very important stages, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. It's understanding a likely future world, it's taking a stance and understanding what world you desire for, and of course it has to be realistic. And then the third thing is to come up with interventions that make that transition happen. And I think that's a much more simple story than kind of explaining all eight or ten steps that are underlying VIP. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you always work with the VIP method with a with a client? That's that's the, the, your what your organ, your organization does. What reframing. Yeah.
1: So so I, I, what I experienced when you start to create content before you have any organization, it doesn't work. So I uh, so I have a dialogue with a client. Or um, an organization, we just talk about things and then we understand together we have to, to, to s- start doing something. So, yeah. so we always work with FIP. Also, because there are so many other organizations who work in another way, we're not just good at it. So yeah. we're good at VIP. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of work to be done in relation to FIP. And I fully understand that not the whole world wants to work with FIB,
0: but it's kind of a a philosophy as well as a. I mean, it is no, philosophy is the wrong word, but it there's a kind of worldview behind it. I, I I fully
1: agree because so in the beginning, so in principle, you start to explore how future society looks like without taking into account the existence of the organization you work for. Yeah, so it is like. It's disconnected from the organization you work for. So if the organization doesn't allow that type of exploration, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work. And the big consultancies, of course, they start from organizational point of view often. So they start from inside and look outside, and we start from outside, and then want to understand how it affects everything on the inside.
0: So what... Things. I mean you describe it as a very easy process you know you meet clients yeah. and you have these nice conversations and and um, but I wonder what you feel that the expertise that you've built up over the years I mean when you start off with your you know if you think back to the first yeah. years of your practice and how is that different from now you know what what do you really feel that you've kind of got expert in yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I think we're not afraid anymore of any complexity so the so in the beginning, we so when you think of 20 years ago, we thought of, oh, maybe we should avoid that specific theme because it's just too complex to start working on. And I think we are unafraid at the moment. So we have so much we created so much self-confidence that this process will help us out that we don't care anymore how complex that first kind of where so the complexity of where we start from we don't care anymore
0: and when did you realize that you had that confidence then what was it i
1: think i think that's a very natural it, it evolves very naturally it is so in doing you automatically kind of constantly increase the complexity step by step and before you know it you're doing things that you thought of 10 years beforehand you, you could never do. So it's, it's a very natural thing. And you, mm-hmm. you, you, you do not reflect on it. It's just also, it's, I think it's also kind of triggered by that you feel excitement yourself by constantly increasing uh, the complexity of issues you work on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise things become boring too. It's not that a small, less complex theme is boring. Don't get me get me wrong, but it's. I I think from from a more human point of view, there's a tendency to constantly increase complexity. Mm.
0: So do you think now, if you compare to where you are now with where you started from, do you do you think in a different way? Do you do you, do you see things in a different way, in when you design?
1: People often think that when you make things theoretical, people do not understand things anymore but it's exactly the opposite Mm. those theories they help you to truly make good decisions and to understand what you do and why you took that stance
0: so it sounds like each it sounds like you're the way you're describing what what you do is that you're constantly learning new things things are things are coming along you're able to bring them into your work somehow
1: yeah, so so what you can say is that each step in VIP, you can see it as a concept or a deliverable. Mm-hmm. yeah But behind every deliverable, there's a theory, and those theories, they can really help you understanding how to what you do. Yeah. how to develop those deliverables. Yeah, yeah. And I think what happens is that those theories become more and more nuanced and profound.
0: If so the you, more you think about them, the, 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 the more complicated they get, maybe, or the more they resonate with you? Or... Yeah, and,
1: and, and, and the more delicate is your understanding. So if you wake me up in the middle of the night and you ask me, so give me some kind of theories on how people perceive an object, then I will give you an answer. <laughs> yeah, it's really stupid. And and maybe it's not even true, but I th- I think it's true. And it helps me designing stuff. Yeah, okay. And it helps also me to explain to an organization that design is not something that is, is a choice from a designer's point of view, but it's a choice you make for someone else.
0: How do you organize the, the, the projects that you have? You, how, how many people do you have working at? At the support?
1: moment, 14.
0: And are you a part of every project?
1: No, no. Uh, so my role changed in the last years by... So I'm more the dialogue starter... And it takes so much time to start a project. So so the first kind of um, encounter you have with an organization, time between this first encounter and starting a project often is three years or something. And I'm more kind of this guy kind of starting to work on on these dialogues and to start this dialogue and to maybe lure people in. Maybe luring is the wrong word, <laughs> but maybe sometimes it is.
0: Yeah, bringing bringing in people, at a, yeah, connecting with people, I guess.
1: Connecting with people, um, but based on stories. Hmm. So what I do is storytelling, but more on a the theoretical, from a theoretical point of view, how it can be of help for an organization.
0: Do you have um, specific mechanisms or techniques for for reflecting? You know, either personally or as a as a as a studio.
1: Yeah, I th- I think we're. we're we're in the middle of, of redefining what, what that could be. Because reflecting, um, we did it mainly from a content point of view. And I think from process point of view, it's much more interesting. And the thing is, so when you're under a lot of pressure, so, so we had just so many things to do. And then it's often only content, content. And then you reflect on content because that's what you deliver in the end. And now we fully understand, okay, if we don't reflect on the process and on how we work together and how we make this working together more of an appropriate concept, then maybe in the end, the content will suffer from it. So we're in the middle of it mm. to do proper reflection.
0: So I had a, a question. There's a, um, a book by Brian Lawson and Case Dorst called Design Expertise. And in that book, they... They quote, the, there's a philosopher called Hubert Dreyfus who, who has this model of the different scales of expertise. So they have a scale that goes from novice to beginner to advanced beginner, to competent, to expert, to master, and then to visionary at the end. And I wondered where That's you That's would... stupid. <laughs>
1: I don't like that scale at all. No. Okay, why not? You can be visionary uh, as, a, as a, what was the first? The novice. first- yeah, as an office. Okay.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you where you put yourself on that. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's a difficult one.
0: It's difficult to say that you're a visionary. I know. I, I noticed in the Vip book that you say that some of the the Vip approach was based on talking to visionary designers too. You, you,
1: yeah, in the beginning, but, but the thing, of course, so what for me is very important. So when you look at visionary designers, what they do. Mm-hmm.
0: I wondered about that. I was going to say, as you get more experienced, are you able to play more to Yeah, to take more risks, maybe? Or, to, or you know, you, you, describe, yeah. you describe sort of embracing more complexity. But is it, in a sense, is that, is that just playing with things in a way where, where your complexity tells you something?
1: Yeah, but it's also playing in increasing complexity. Because what you do, you 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 put even more uh, elements on the table. Because you say we're gonna play, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so you allow yourself to maybe not know what you do, and that's very interesting. But in the end, the co- it's it's playing is about increasing complexity, and I really like that. And that's where people sometimes make a complete kind of they have a misunderstanding what what play is all about. They think it's about
2: Rules. Lightness mm. or rules or
1: yeah, less rules. Uh, and still, I really like to think about how you should develop as a designer is a very inter- interesting question, I think. But I think it's also so when you say, so that's why I don't like it, when you say visionaries at the end, uh, and of course yeah, I it's just I a
0: mechanical have, process of going from one stage to the other. Yeah, it's and, not, and it's and, not I, that. You have elements of all things.
1: No, and, and I truly together. believe that we have to sell design as being visionary. Because that's that's what design is all about in principle. So if you only say in the last stage of your career you can do what design in principle is for, it's a bit of a I think that's a bad it's a bad story. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
0: Well, just talking about learning, I w- I wondered as you are a professor here at Delft too. Yeah. What what the crossover is between your practice in reframing studio and and the teaching that you do at Delft? How does how does that crossover? Is that is that the VIP method that that crosses over that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's it's also about the storytelling of VIP. So I I, I think so. What I feel now is that concepts that are not so easy to grasp it's really necessary that you have to tell them in in all kind of different ways so there's not one explanation of FIP, but maybe there should be 10 or 200 (laughs) and the more they are the better it is Mm. and it's maybe the opposite as how we started with it because we we were always saying this is FIP and this is what it is Mm. But the funny thing is, so if, so if, if you see reframing as how case Dorst sees, sees it, like y- you kind of look at it from a different perspective. Uh, I think this is what I do nowadays that I can kind of like explain VIP from 10 or 15 different, pers- different, I can ways. turn it around, Make I can flip it, it over. Yeah. Yeah. I can start from, yeah, I can start from everywhere. Yeah. And that's, I really enjoy that.
0: Yeah. So they say. You, so you're able to, when you work with students, you're able to take different positions in order to understand their yeah. worldview and bring that out
1: of them. I can empathize with them because then I see, okay, this is not going to work. So I have to, I have to use another type of entrance or another story or another analogy or another, and then I just do it differently. Mm-hmm. So so I'm constantly looking for this. So you want to create this relationship with the students, and. Every time it's a unique relationship, so you have to be careful that FIP is not uh, is so strong that it doesn't allow for that unique relationship anymore, and that's I think what I'm capable of doing now. And
0: I mean, it's interesting because you're you're describing the expertise that you've developed as a teacher too, I yeah. think, as well as the expertise that you've developed as a as a designer. Too.
1: Yeah, and 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 again, so my role as a designer, so since. I'm not responsible anymore for the content of all the projects we're doing. I have a completely other role and i and I had to adapt to that role too i was i hated that role in the beginning I just hated it and then i had to i had to rethink myself in relation to the studio
0: mm. it was, i think there are some if i think of some architectural practices maybe where where they develop a certain way of thinking about the world through the projects that they take on and then the people that start those practices become slightly more distant from the actual realities of producing the projects yeah but they're thinking all the time about where projects fit and and how they fit into their kind of longer-term vision for the for the studio or the or the business it's true yes yeah.
1: yeah it's something like that and then the most difficult thing is that th- quality of the work you deliver is studio effort yeah. so you don't want to become this architect that one person because then you're dead as an organization so it's, it's very interesting how the people working within Reframe Studio they are so much kind of better in executing projects now mm. and this is of course what I also, also tell the organizations I started dialogue with mm. And, and again, I'm only a conversation starter.
0: I think that's a good point to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Matthijs, thanks very much. It's a really interesting discussion, and thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, when you st- start to... So when we, when we start this, I can't stop anymore, as, <laughs> as you notice. So I'm going to stop now.
0: Okay, that was uh, Matthias van Dijk from Reframing Studio. I must admit, I really enjoyed that discussion. It was yeah. very. It didn't quite go where I thought it was going to go, but I thought we touched on some interesting areas. Yes. What was, did you What did you think?
2: Yeah, it was great to uh, to listen to. I think in general, I really love uh, people who are talking about their work. If you ask them, you know, why do you do this work and why do you love this work, you always get really great um, stories. So uh, I also really enjoyed that when I was listening to this uh, to this podcast.
0: And what what have you learned in 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 your work too because i think that's really nice to hear from people that are really experts and we'll come on to talk about the the model of expertise later but to really get them to think about what they actually do differently from when they started off i think it's something that you they probably don't do that often you need that you need the question don't you to actually start thinking about that
2: yeah and he had some uh, really great examples of that as well
0: what were the things that stood out for you then in the interview
2: well, you know, this This podcast obviously being about expertise, I thought it was interesting. You asked the question uh, about if he thought of himself as a visionary. Um, and then uh, he didn't want to answer that question, which I totally understand, because I don't think anyone would think of themselves or, or of a visionary or if they would think of themselves as a visionary, they wouldn't say it. Right. That's what, <laughs> no,
0: that's what I said. It's yeah. difficult to describe yourself yes. as a visionary. Yeah,
2: it's a very strange thing to say about yourself. Um, uh, but I really liked how he was saying how um, his work had become mo- much more about, I would say, relationships. So he was saying how he started one of the things that he does on a daily basis is building relationships with clients. Uh, and now that's a real s- skill and how he goes through this dialogue with, 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 with clients and then he was talking about how he, he uh, works with students as well. So there's kind of a relational aspect there as well, how you help students through this process. And he was even talking about the studio work. He said, I mean, it's not about individual uh, uh, uh design projects, projects yeah, a, that we do it as a studio you know i don't want to be the architects which i think is a really uh, yeah, interesting way of looking at it because I think that's that, that's maybe I, yeah, maybe that's how we think of architects as as being kind of the single architect and not bringing their team along but i really like that you know it's this relational aspect
0: that was something that case mentioned in the first podcast or the second podcast i think the idea that you you can have a business and it has projects but when you know how those projects run and you be, you're a director of a of a business it has to be about something else and i think he matthias described that quite well that you know this idea of co- starting conversations often three years in advance of getting the yeah. the project i think yeah. and actually thinking about where you want to be positioned within a societal context yeah. all those sort of slightly bigger questions yeah that he gets he now gets the time to think about and explore with yeah your potential clients.
2: And I think that's real skill, you know, real expertise. We tend not to talk about these more softer social skills in terms of building relationships, but that really it really requires asking the right questions and uh really, you know, good listening um and I think, you know, there's something we can do more about in our educational program as well.
0: I thought it was interesting how he described well how he how he describes his relationship with theory? he mentioned theory a few times, there, yes. which I thought was interesting and behind every stage of the process it, there's a theory and he get that was one of the expertises that he said he'd acquired over the years he He can much better uh, have a much nuanced more nuanced idea of the theory behind certain steps and he can articulate that to clients so he i think at one stage he said he was a a theoretical storyteller mm. he, can st- he he uses theories to tell stories so it's interesting, in a course like Design Theory and Methodology, you, you tend to think of theory as an abstract, not a very useful thing. But actually, in his context, it is really useful. It helps persuade people. It helps convince people to invest in in your organization.
2: Yeah. The other thing um, I really liked was um, the way he was talking about FIP. And particularly in relation to the expertise levels, but we'll get to that in a moment. So we often tend to think about novice versus uh, versus expert designers. And how I often explain it is uh, I, I often use the metaphor of dancing. I mean, there's many different metaphors we can use, but if you want to become a dancer, you know, first time you step on the dance floor, especially when you're in ballroom dancing or that's it. You kind of have to count, right? So it's like one, two, three, one, two, three. And you're really, really conscious of what's happening. But when you become more and more experts, you know that kind of the, the counting you don't you no longer do, fluent. and it becomes much more intuitive, much more fluency, fluency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fluency. Yeah. Um, so that's something um, you know we see in design as well. You know when you when you first start designing, you follow all the steps, uh, but the more you do it, the more fluent you become. And I really liked what Matthijs was saying, because uh, I think that might even be an expert level further. I don't know. But he was talking about uh, VIP and how they used to say that there's only one way to do VIP and it's this way. And it's a bit about, you know, these are kind of the steps. This is how you have to count and this is how you have to do it. whilst now he's saying, no, no, there's like, I don't know, so many different ways you can do it. So it's more like a, like a framework. And it's up to the designer kind of how to work with that. And I think that's that's real expertise when you can kind of let go of that um, you know dogmatic way or, or almost of, of doing design.
0: So let's talk about the, the, the model of expertise that I introduced in that um in, in the interview with Matt. One thing that I've always been quite interested in is there's this sort of classification of expertise as 10,000 hours yes Uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell in his book kind of refers to it basically if you spend 10,000 hours on anything then by definition you're an expert because within that time you've had to practice so much and you've become fluent at so much and, and you've thought about the subject so much it's just an amount of time invested in something so when you think of your lifetime as a designer how many hours that you're going to naturally spend thinking about design and solving design problems if you stick with the profession, you'll end up becoming an expert at some, mm. at some point. But the, So the model is, is from a philosopher called Hubert Dreyfus. And he has six levels of expertise. And it starts off with novice. It goes to advanced, beginner, competent, expert, master, and visionary. They're the six levels. And I think, I think the first thing to say is that I think it's really helpful to not think of expertise in terms of novice and experts. Because that, that's a, you know a dichotomy that it doesn't really help you Either you're a novice or you're an expert. No. Of course, there are other stages in between. And I think, particularly in an education, it's, it, it's interesting to think that, how do you get from a novice level to being a, an advanced beginner? You know, what are the things that you have to acquire and from advanced beginners to become competent? Yeah, And those things are, are much more about kind of learning techniques and becoming fluent in, in certain activities.
2: And recognising situations and those kind of things. Yeah. I, I recommend that uh, people who are listening, they have a look at those uh, different levels of expertise because I think it's quite useful. One of the things that I like about, I think it's in this book by Lawson, Brian Lawson and Kay Storst, is that they say, well, design consists of many different expertises. So it's not just, just that you're being a designer, yeah. but yeah. you can, for example, how how... Matthijs was talking about building all these relationships. There's a specific expertise, right? Yeah. Or, or how we talk about framing, for example, or it might be about visualizing. Yeah. Yeah. So most people, they would sit on different levels of expertise on, you know, different different competences or skills uh, I, I, Actually, I think to a I
0: think that's a real sign of someone gaining expertise is that they're able to isolate different bits of The whole system. Mm. So, if you ask someone about kind of designing, they're able to talk about one very particular component of designing and how that operates rather than talking about the whole thing. So, I think if you ask someone who has less experience, you know, what's what's designed or what's the design process, there's a natural inclination to say, well, it's this double diamond process, and which which covers everything but doesn't really tell you the small details that that quite often matter in a design process, and that's that ability to to really focus in on details and ignore the rest of it and practice that little one Mm. component Mm. and then link it to other other kinds of things that Mm. that displays kind of Mm. someone developing Mm. expertise. The metaphor I I like is is cooking. Yeah. You know, because it starts off it starts off as, you know, how to boil an egg and, you know, you can't even boil an egg, but when you go right up to the top chefs to see what they do, there's a there's a sort of mid level of kind of following recipes, and I think recipes are there's they're quite a good analogy with design methods because yes. you have different stages and you have to add ingredients and you yeah. have to, but there's a lot of feel involved, and as you get more experience, you kind of know the ingredients that go that work together. You know if you have to put in a bit yeah. more olive oil or you know yeah. a bit more flour or something like that, and you you develop your taste too. I yeah, think, your flavor balance. Yeah, so so. And there's a really good um, cooking program on Netflix called um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. They're the four components of cooking. Um, that the and it's a documentary that together form the basis of every every food mm. and what the top chefs do is manipulate those four components so oh, it's yeah. in, a, in a, it's really nice because it's sort of it's simple but as you see the documentary it's much more complex than that mm. uh, the, the other thing that hubert Dreyfus writes that i thought was really interesting was um about intuition a paper called expertise in real world world contexts and it's really a paper around comparing artificial intelligence you know what is it what is expertise and can we capture it and put it in a computer that's what the, yeah. the underlying question is they say no we can't really do this and this is a paper about why why we can't mm-hmm. really do this but at, at the beginning they say expertise is based on the making of immediate unreflective situational responses intuitive judgment is the hallmark of expertise mm. and i think that's really interesting because Design methods are all about getting away from intuition somehow. but ex- if expertise is all about intuition, then what role do design methods play? And I, I think it, it's interesting to sort of think how design methods get you to a point where you can your intuition takes over. I think that's that's mm. the what I'd look at is that you don't start off being intuitive. Basically you, the, your training gets you to the place where you can start being trusting yourself and being more intuitive and just and I think Matthias described in his in the interview about play you know and being able to play with things and not being afraid to embrace complexity and all those sorts of things and I think I think what he was describing there was you know I use my intuition a lot more these days than I did in the past
2: yeah I mean it's that term intuitive judgment what 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 does that mean in design because you know we we use it quite a bit i think also in design theories we talk about judgment um, but is, does that mean that we're judging the design situation
0: i think you're judging a a, a number of factors so mm-hmm. i sort of think of myself as an sort of educational designer i guess yeah. and the the educational courses that i you know kind of work on that we've worked on together when I'm making a judgment, I'm sorta of thinking of what the consequences will be, but I want them to be interesting consequences that have a number of layers, you know, yeah. that they might go one way or they might go other way and you create the sort of container for that somehow. But it's not it's not certainty that I'm looking for. It's sort of just is this gonna go an interesting way? This does this setup lead to yes. interesting things? Yeah. And that's a kind of intuitive sense yeah. of, yeah, I kind of know what the people are like. And if they use this thing to do this, yeah. then something interesting will happen.
2: Yeah. And I think um, that's also related to how we build expertise, because, um, you know, we build expertise by uh, in design by doing lots of design projects. And... Um, I don't know if it's Brian Lawson who says that I think so that you know when you when a designer faces a design situation new problem situation they recognize patterns from the past I yeah. think also yeah. Donald Schoen uh, yeah. talks about that and I guess that's that kind of intuitive judgment as play that you can that you recognize thing, things there that you've yeah. seen yeah. before yeah and it doesn't mean that you have evidence that it's going to work but it gives you that sense of confidence that you know you can do it yeah come yeah i've been here direction. before
0: and i know what the the, the yeah. variables are here yeah. and i can sort of um, even yeah. though
2: each design situation is is unique and different there's yeah. always a pattern there that you can yeah. recognize
0: so i think i mean expertise for me I, it's for me it's an interesting podcast because it brings a lot of other things together in design methods yeah, you know because everyone you know the whole point of being at university is to get better at something and then actually you want to feel that you're developing through your life so i think it's really for me it's like a key a key topic to embrace and to sort of think about and actually that we'll come back to in assignment two i think isn't it that that some of the some of the things that i think matthias talked about are things that that will be relevant in assignment two for the practice manual yeah okay so Thanks, Mika. I think that was a good discussion. I think we Thanks, touched Peter. on some really interesting stuff. And we're, as as with other podcasts, we'll put all the references in the show notes. And. Um,
2: Next time you interview an expert, ask what they're expert in and on which level they would position themselves.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Okay. <laughs> bye.
2: Bye.